so hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Thinking Aloud About Film. Uh, this is going to be our 22nd episode. Uh, and after discussing City of Sadness last week, we're now returning to, uh, I suppose, a context. This time we will be looking at uh, our time, our, our story by uh, Xiao Shu Shen, uh, which is the second document, full-length documentary that we've seen on uh, New Taiwanese Cinema. The first was The Flowers of Taipei, which... Uh, which you really, you really enjoyed, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought this, this was great. I mean, it was so informative. I learned a huge amount from it about the directors, about the other people around them, about the, you know, the government agency that promoted the whole thing, about some lesser known names, you know, the woman who was a, a key figure at the beginning and then was kind of overlooked and which is very, Sylvia, Chang? Sylvia Chang which I found very interesting I'm still not totally clear on why the movement broke up but it, a little bit clearer on that and about how they how they all interacted and also about the you know the relationship between these films and the kind of immediately preceding Taiwanese cinema but also other forms of Taiwanese cinema that were going on at the same time felt, felt like a, a made-for-tv um, documentary I guess from 2002. Ah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the reviews on, I suppose it's Letterbox, said something like, terrible documentary, but full of wonderful footage and information. <laughs> so, yeah. what, what, and what do you want from a documentary? <laughs> I want that well, fo exactly, footage and information, right. please. <laughs> I know, but it gets, you know, it's interesting because you said something not too dissimilar just now. Mm. To compare this to Flowers of Taipei, Flowers of Taipei was filmed in this very elaborate way with, you know, worldwide locations and attempts at artistic shots without giving you any useful information. This was a, you know, a, a documentary with no pretensions. It, it was, you know, some interesting clips, interesting archive footage, loads of in interviews with, with interesting figures, but filmed in, yeah, filmed in that kind of... <laughs> Reminded me, me, yeah, reminded me a bit of the, the way it was filmed. It was a bit like Spinal Tap, with because you always saw the back of the interviewer's head. Um, no, that's harsh. I, I, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to be harsh, but it, but you know, I, I, it's not a criticism. It's just is it, it is what it is, and we should say it's, this is available. It's a, it's an extra feature on the Blu-ray, the Criterion Blu-ray of, of a Brighter Summer Day. Um, in the UK and I, I assume in other markets where that's available. And, so. and worth getting on its own. It's, I mean, well, so. it's almost worth the price of the Blu-ray for the documentary, exactly. I think. So, so what I would say is that this is a superb documentary done in a traditional style. Yeah. yeah? So, yeah. you know, it is talking heads, it's historical, it's told in chronological order, uh, you know, but at the end of it, you feel you've really learned something that you didn't know before. And that was your whole list that you came up with at the beginning, which I would like to go through now, you know, point by point. So if you can go through <laughs> that list again and kind of, you know, bring up each issue. <laughs> I, I, I sort of scribbled down some notes while I was watching it, just about things that, that occurred to me as, as interesting things. So the, the bureaucracy was interesting. So there's a lot in, in there about the the CMPC, which I think is the Central Motion Picture Committee, which essentially is this like 
I guess a bit like the BFI, but it's, the, it's this government bureaucracy. And it's all these guys in suits, and they showed the office they're working in. It's just these guys coming into, and they were all, they were all guys in suits, you know. And yeah, they were wearing suits, and they were guys. They would turn up in this office every day, and there was all this stuff. Oh, and I had to sit opposite this guy for like 20 years in this office, and he then, you know, put girly magazine posters behind me because he didn't like looking at my face and all, all this, these kinds of stories. But essentially, it was this kind of bureaucracy. And they were looking at the way cinema was performing commercially at that point, you know, the, the pre-New Taiwanese cinema, and just decided, we, well, we need to create a new kind of cinema. So it's, all, it's almost like they, they put together this movement. The comparison that came to mind was like a manufactured boy band. <laughs> I was fascinated by that as well. And instead of it reminding me of the BFI, it reminded me more of the Ikaik in Cuba, because the Ikaik was the only game in town. If you, you know, if you wanted to make films in Cuba, you had to make them through, you know, Ikaik. Um, and this is a little bit like that. I mean, this is, you know, the central film production unit in Taiwan. Uh, obviously, there were many other films released in, in Taiwan, but the ones that were made there were made, you know, through this organization. Uh, it w they were made during a period you know, it was there was martial law still. They were made really by, you know, all of these. It was a very bureaucratic process, right? And we hear some of those stories about, you know, how one of the films was brought to a halt. The director kind of, you know, punished even on his low budget and being told, you know, the film would not continue until, you know, he took over and he crossed over. Right? Well, one thing that was interesting about that was there were, there were a few stories about the fact that these these bureaucrats, these guys in suits, kind of shielded the filmmakers. So because they were, they were, they were working within this organisation, so effectively it meant that they were given a degree of artistic freedom and they could push the envelope of that artistic freedom. And it's kind of like the bureaucrats running the show knew exactly how far they could push it and also knew it was a little bit like well okay yeah if we just do this if we tweak this or if i say this to that person in government we'll get away with it so they had they kind of had someone with had their back which i think was an in, an interesting dynamic i think this is a film that was made as a way of explaining uh historicizing and celebrating uh new taiwanese cinema so of course you do have these bureaucrats who you know, go on to say, I made it possible for Hu Xiaoshan to make this <laughs> film or for this film to be made. You know, there's someone else who comes in later. We always make sure later that we got, you know, two new filmmakers every year and so on. But, you know, and I'm not saying that I disbelieve that this person made that possible, you know, but uh, like you said, this is, you know, the Central Motion Picture Committee. I mean, there were probably like 500 people working there. And you think, well, you know, how many people do they prevent from making films? You know, and what were the vendettas like? And, you know, what talent did they ruin or prevent from coming which, through? That sort of brings up one of the next points, which is um, Sylvia Chang. She's interviewed at length in the film. She is uh, an actress and a director and a producer and a writer, I think. And she had already, I think she'd produced a TV series before In Our Time with the, the portmanteau film she, and she's seen as one of the driving forces behind this group and she was in the, in a position where she was going to be directing one of the films in in our time but so i mean i, I didn't catch who it was that said no well no don't maybe you don't want to direct it maybe you just want to act in one of them and there is some eye rolling going on in that interview you know clearly it's like hey no it's it's it's, it's okay let, let them let the men direct the films kind of thing so that that was interesting that you got this and it reminded me a bit of the 
you know, the French New Wave and, and you know, Agnes Varda being kind of, you know, overlooked at the expense at the time, overlooked at the expense of Goddard and Truffaut, you know. This is even worse, I think, because I think Agnes Varda at least was able to make her films. Uh, whereas if there are any important uh, women directors uh, in this period in Taiwan cinema, certainly neither this film nor the other documentary tells us about. No, I, so, I mean, I, I looked Sylvia Chang up on IMDb and she's had a, you know, a, a very successful career. But, you know, clearly, in, you know, there, there's a, a parallel universe where, you know, it might have been her rather than Edward Yang or her rather than Ho Shao Shan, you know. Um, I mean, who, who knows? Who knows how good she would have been? But, you know, it's interesting. It feels very boys club. Yeah. There's no yeah. question about that, right? Uh, but again, you know, let's put that in context. I mean, the film makes clear, you know, that uh, all of this work came out in uh, a, a process of change, yeah, of, of change into democracy, of change from an agrarian, you know, to an urban culture, yeah, kind of. And actually, one of the things that I think is so wonderful about this film is that it demarcates all of those contexts, right? You know, the question of language, Right when they, yeah, all films were forced to be in Mandarin, yeah, until a certain point. So it gives you all of that story. Yeah, and that so that was very interesting, given the the discussions we've had a few times about about language in in in, in these films, because it's what they say is that well, first thing I would say is there's a couple of there's a couple of omissions from this film. Uh, one is they're the only pre New Taiwanese cinema they mention is the kind of commercial cinema immediately before that and also the was it the um healthy realism healthy realism films um they there's no mention of, of the taiwanese language cinema of the 60s that we've been watching but on the other hand this was made in 2002 when that stuff was probably still not particularly accessible but yeah in terms of language you know all films had to be made in mandarin and the the new taiwan cinema makers were saying well no we we're going for realism. We want the films to be made in the language that people would be speaking. So Mandarin speakers speak Mandarin and Taiwanese speakers speak Taiwanese. And one of the filmmakers, I can't remember who it was, says, yeah, his 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 dad, when these films came out, his dad, who presumably would have been in his 50s or 60s at the time in the 80s, um, said, oh, it's great, it's great because finally there's a there are films that I can go and see where I don't have to read subtitles because yeah, everything else he was watching in Mandarin with Taiwanese subtitles. Um, so that and that was interesting because I'd, I'd not quite realised that that I mean presumably Time to Live and Time to Die was largely in Mandarin I assume because it's a Mandarin family, but the other Ho Shan films are presumably a mix of Mandarin and Taiwanese, and similarly obviously City of Sadness as we talked about last time was a a mix of Taiwanese and Japanese and and and, and Mandarin. Hmm. I mean, this is a film that um, provided me with all the other, all the things I criticize the flowers of Taipei for lacking. So for example, um, we found we find out about how this new cinema coexisted with exploitation films with melodramas, right? How there were debates around uh, what Taiwanese cinema should be like, you know, was this new and, and it does so dialectically. So on the one hand, here are the, you know these new films that are garnering all of this attention, but on the other hand, you know people were worried that you know they weren't being box office successes, 
and you know that commercial cinema was being killed in Taiwan in favor of this art cinema that nobody saw and yeah. nobody liked. And it, <laughs> so yeah, so they they make the point that fifteen percent of films were new Taiwanese cinema films. Fifteen percent of Taiwanese films produced, sorry, were the new Taiwanese cinema films, and so you know eighty five percent were commercial films or, or other, other genres of film, but the ones that were getting all the attention and all the funding from the government were the new Taiwanese cinema films. There, there was also an interesting point talking about, because um, you know this, this new type of cinema came along and then it kind of got co-opted by commercial cinema. So commercial, there were commercial films being made that were kind of trying to use some of those kind of new time and cinema tropes because it was the fashionable thing to do they did share some clips from those films where it was kind of a commercial action film that had tried to use some of those those ideas one of the things that i liked is that the film places this new taiwanese cinema in a whole series of contexts you know so commercial cinema genre cinema exploitation cinema were introduced to stars right and you know kind of were told how important the stars were uh, to to the commercial success of the film, we're introduced to one of them, whose film was you know was turned into a success just by virtue that she would be seen to be putting on forty five pounds throughout the film. <laughs> yeah, I the kind of things that you know Hollywood cinema. Yeah, to be, yeah, because yeah. that was an interesting point that one criticism of the new time cinema films is that they were all. Um, director driven there's no stars because they, they were all using you know non-professionals like, or, or or each other right uh, casting each other in films but the but and then one of them makes the point um that possibly that was because they were all a bit nervous about working with stars and they so they they they, they didn't cast big names um but the 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 other thing is so that the the, the film about the woman who puts on 45 pounds so they so they they became they became a couple, as as was evident in their interview, right? The 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 the, the actress and the, and the director became became a couple, and uh, so they made two films together. One of which was the one where she puts on forty five pounds, and then the director's first wife found out they were having an affair and went to the press, wrote an open letter to the press about how disgraceful this was. They were having an affair, and so the both of them, the director and the actress, left the film industry to become glassblowers or something. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I just yes, love that story, but I, but I just thought that I just loved that interview with them because it was such a cute couple. You know, they just clearly so because they, they, yeah, they were being interviewed in two thousand and two. They were yeah, so in love, and this was like twenty years after the film was made, and and they, they were just sort of they were just kind of flirting and joking with each other. And she was like, oh yeah, you were scared of me making the film, weren't you? And you didn't you didn't want to do this, and and um, so that that was interesting. Yes, and there's also a wonderful anecdote about um, which I think is very illustrative of. Uh, uh, the, you know the, the changes and the problems, which is that he had designed this shot where she would go and cry, but instead of the camera landing on her face to watch her cry, the camera would uh, re- go onto a wall of cement. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <She> couldn't understand <laughs> yeah, why it would go in a block of cement, and you know, and he had to explain how the rhythm and so on and so on would you know evoke the sense of sadness. The film, through anecdote like this, is very informative on these changes, and it gives you 
Yeah, you know, because although all you know, all those interviews were being done twenty years after the events, it really does give you an idea of what it was like, what you know, what the working atmosphere was like, you know, what the interactions between the people were like, because they're all. I mean, obviously, obviously, other than Edward Yang, who, who who was already dead by that point, they they're all interviewed. You know, Ho Shan's interviewed at length, and all, all all the others, and and you know, cinematographers. I mean, yeah, there's there's these great stories about from a camera he's a film editor, and he he's he says he you know he's he's like sitting in his booth and these three like uncouth yobs kind of burst in demanding that he shows this film for them and then he he eventually realizes later that that was Ho Shao Shen I think it's like Ho Shao Shen and Edward Yang and somebody else um yes. just th- these kind of they re-edited the tailor uh, the trailer of the boys from Fang yeah 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 the, um, well the yeah that's that was a really interesting story that they talk about boys from Fang Kui and and I think Ho Shao Shen says this that they shot it in in 21 days which is given how good a film it is this seems amazing a very short yeah and he he first screened it he, he had an assembled cut and he screened it 20 days later so like 40 days after he started filming and edward yang was watching it with him and basically edward yang said i can make this film a lot better i can like re-edit it for you and he said okay go on then and so edward yang just went away and re-edited the film for him and 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 and, and added and the, music. the music, yeah. yeah. And so the um, the film that you end up with is is, and again, it says it all about the collaboration between these people at that point. That they that, that you know, it was an, an open exchange of ideas, right? That that you know, one of them is just say, saying, "What do you think of my film?" And the other one's saying, "Well, it's it's pretty good, but it could be brilliant, and I know how to make it brilliant." And and then letting him do it. I think I found that fascinating. One of the richnesses of this video, of this film. Uh, is that it provides interviews with the film editors, the cinematographers, the sound people in this period, which gives you an indication of what the working practices were and how the working practices of this cinema that came to be called New Taiwanese Cinema differed, right? Uh, We're told, for example, that uh, there wasn't very good equipment to record sound, that... Hu Shaoshen's A City of Sadness was the first film that was shot in Taiwan with live sound, right? How they didn't have the correct equipment for it, how Hu Shaoshen had to buy it, yeah, for the sound person. Yeah, uh, and, and, uh, and, and again, it's, it's, that's an interesting one about the collaboration, because Hu Shaoshen thought he was going to get a big payout from City of Sadness, so said to the guy who'd done the sound recording for it, what equipment do you need to do this properly for your next film or for my next film? And he gave him this big list of what they would use in Hollywood. And Ho Shashen bought it for him. And then he found out later that he'd actually had to use, you know, Ho would use his own money to, 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 to buy that. And again, that kind of comes back to the the thing about him kind of remortgaging his house to fund Type I Story. You know, I've, I've still not really been clear on why this group ended, but you get the impression from this film that they didn't, it's not like they had a big falling out. It's just they stopped working together. You know, they 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 sort of they clearly were all still in touch and we're all still friendly, but not working together. Is the impression I got? The film gives a kind of a nice haiku, yeah, <laughs> type of ending about it, right? You know, first you go together, you know, then you separate to fight your own battles, and then you make your own path. Something like that, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it doesn't really explain. No. Uh, and, you know, and it doesn't tell you really what happened. Um, but, you know, fair enough. I mean... It is, it is fair enough. They're, they're all, like, in their 20s 
at that at the early point, presumably, or 20s or early 30s, and then they just kind of get older, drift apart, and, and want to do their own thing, and, and don't want to be all associated with each other, I guess. I mean, people make too much in a way of this, right? In a, in a way, this is an artificial construct, yeah? Because, you know, the idea of new Taiwan cinema, you know, uh, it's not as if, you know, these group of people set up with a whole series of ideals and this is the way we're going to make film. I mean, it's all artificial, it's all construct, it's all press, right? It's all, you know, a way of creating a space for a different type of cinema, right? Which is fair enough, you know, but it is artificial to a degree. Nothing has to break up in order for things to change. This film made it clearer that there wasn't this big breakup. It was just like they all moved apart. Although there is there is a comment at one point where there's clearly a little bit of a, an issue. And I, I can't remember who says this, but the quote is, you know, there were, you know, internationally, there were three names associated with New Taiwanese cinema, and they were Ho Shao Shen, Ho Shao Shen, and Ho Shao Shen, because that's all that's all you ever heard about. And which but is, the film contradicts that. The film, no, no, I, I, exactly. The film contradicts that, but but I still, but you know, again, going back to the Mark Cousins book, where he only names Ho Shao Shen and Edward Yang, and then just only gives one sentence to Edward Yang. Yeah, internationally, yeah, it, unless you delve into it, you're not going to see films by these other filmmakers. Uh, you know. Well, I thought one of the great benefits of watching this documentary was that we not only saw a lot of other filmmakers, you know, pe people who, who, whose names are not familiar to me, but we get to hear them, we get to see them, we get to see excerpts of their work, you know, all these other uh, uh, filmmakers during this period, you know, some of them working within the art cinema mode, some of them actually making quite commercial films. Yeah, yeah. They all appear and talk about what was happening yeah. during that time. I, and one of the things I really liked is that towards the end, they, they interview a, like a, a, a Taiwanese commercial filmmaker um, who just makes big action movies, which, you know, and he, he talks about the difference between action movies and art films and how he doesn't see himself in competition with, you know, Taiwanese art cinema. He's in competition with Hong Kong martial arts cinema. One of his films came out the same time as City of Sadness and City of Sadness beat his film in the box office. And he's he's clearly like still really angry about that. But in a, he's kind of joking. And, and I think that's it. That's very interesting about City of Sadness that it was a hit at the level that it was, it, it beat the local equivalent of a Jackie Chan movie, you know. I think one of the things that I found uh, the film very interesting in is that it provides context. So, you know, we get to hear about the distribution of films, that there was the Majestic, which uh, showed Hollywood films, and the China cinema that, you know, released Taiwanese uh, uh, films. Um, that uh, there were film uh, uh, magazines that existed, and actually a new, a new magazine was created just as a vehicle for new Taiwanese cinema, right, to create a space for it. We're also told about, you know, how in the 1970s there was 230 films released every year, and how by 2002 there were only 36. We're told about uh, the impact of VHS and piracy of VHS, and, you know, the film also touches on the lack of respect for piracy laws in Taiwan, so that some, a cable television station actually showed, I forget which film it was. I think it was Time to Live and the Time to Die. They showed it on the day it came out. Yeah. yeah, they showed it the day With it no came permission. Out, no... With no permission yeah. on cable. Yeah. Right? So that it was all, it's just gangsters, basically, right, uh, who people the industry. Um, 
So to me, that was all kind of fascinating. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Just as you say, fascinating about the whole sort of structure of how the industry in in its various strands kind of worked. Yeah. So some other stuff I picked up on, uh, so kind of earlier in the film, was, was uh, again coming back to Hoshan Shan. I mean, well, one thing I would say in terms of the what's not mentioned in this film, there, there's no mention of Ho's earlier career. So there's no mention of the fact he'd already made several films. They don't say he didn't. Yeah, they they don't mislead you, but they don't really say anything about what any of these people had done before they before in our time and and and, and the Sandwich Man. So you don't know that Edward Yang was studying in the States, or possibly they mentioned that, but you don't know that Ho, you know, they talk about the commercial cinema, but Ho Shoshen had made three films within the commercial cinema and written many films within the commercial cinema. So that that's interesting. But then this, they talk about Ho, and the one, uh, and I again, I can't remember who says this, but they just say, we, we saw Ho as being like, he was like really rustic. They see <laughs> this kind of yokel, cause, just because of the way he dresses and the way he acts. Because uh, he clearly, you know, Times of Living, Times of Die was, was autobiographical, and he, yeah, he was growing up in that environment, and he, you know, he wasn't a city boy, and, and that's very apparent. The other interesting thing is when they're talking about Times of Living and Times of Die, and his his collaborator, who was a native Taiwanese, was kind of reading the script and just had this reaction. Oh, right, so you man, some of the some of the mainlanders had a bad time as well. I thought you were all kind of ruling class, rich, you know, living in the city kind of thing. And so there was this kind of un- mutual um, lack of understanding between those two groups that it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't that the Mandarin speakers were all rich and the Taiwanese weren't. It was kind of, there were, you know, I think the Mandarin, the Taiwanese speakers, sorry, were all probably not very well off, but the, it wasn't that all the Mandarin speakers were doing well. And that's how you end up with um, Dust in the Wind based on the other, based on that collaborator's life to sort of show both sides of the of the coin there that, that, that i found really interesting what i found interesting is that there was a manifesto mm. <laughs> all new waves have but the, but the but the manifesto was at the end yes that's that what was, i found that's the thing yeah <laughs> so you know instead of the manifesto coming at the beginning saying taiwanese cinema should be this let's all make this type of cinema it was no you know it was like by the end of the 80s they say okay now we have a manifesto which really is you know the best or what we like most about the films that we've made in the last 10 mm, years right mm. so it's almost like a retrospective yeah yeah uh, manifesto but but also uh, it was saying saying to the cmpc stop funding us to do this and do something else and so they then went off and do you know simon cowell created his next boy band kind of thing <laughs> they, they found, because it, it was sort of it, it, you did get a little a slight impression of that from the cmpc guy they interviewed that was kind of oh well the, you know these directors were kind of getting a bit too independence so let's let's find some more well, no, different I mean, ones that are more malleable no. <laughs> I, I, I didn't get that feeling i mean i got the feeling that you know it's a government you know what 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 does a, a, a national film funding of cinema want to create they want to create films that wave the, the flag abroad that win uh, prizes at film festivals and so on you know but also that develop develop and shape indigenous talent and that makes space for it so you know one of the things that they were speaking was how do you create a context you know in which new f- filmmakers can flower and develop and so on and actually they were mentioning all of these filmmakers ang lee was one of them and many others so the the idea is that you create kind of opportunities for new and young people to create their own uh, type of cinema so I don't think it's just it's it's this thing of creating the new boy band. It's, you know, 
it's like the national theater. You have a stake and a responsibility to kind of create spaces for younger people, you know, to articulate their own form and ideas, really. My last point is that I really appreciated the way that the film ended by returning to the archive. We're returning to history, you know, there's now a space for all of these films, they're all in an archive, the original negatives, and of course it raises questions of well, how well are they being maintained and so on. As I, as I understand it, the people that are responsible for maintaining this stuff are the TFAAI, who are the people that made those earlier Taiwanese films available on online, online for us. a couple of months ago. So, so I think, I don't quite know what the relationship is between, you know, between CMPC and TFAI. But yeah, that was very interesting that, you, you know, the, 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 the director of this film goes into the archive and she's clearly just very excited to see all these, all these prints. Um, I mean, I'd love to, I, I did, I sort of took notes on some of the films that were mentioned and, and I mean some of them are new Taiwanese cinema but the one that, that I really would love to see but I can't find any trace of it online is uh, Farmers Raising Ducks which <laughs> is the, the healthy realism film they show it's, I presume as a kind of it's a good example of a, of a cliched healthy realism film but you know who wouldn't want to see a film called Farmers Raising Ducklings I mean that's that's like it's like, it's like snakes on a plane isn't it <laughs> um, I want to say that you know the film is extraordinary because it somehow manages to get clips from all of these films on the other hand they did make me feel that we've been very lucky to see things in the way that we've seen them because the visual quality of some of the clips are so horrendous that they bear almost no relation to what we have seen that that is yeah. that is interesting isn't it because the one yeah particularly the the, the ho shen and the abu yang ones that we've seen you know the blu-ray copies of or, or the prints. or the movie copies of they they were very very tatty prints but then this this was i mean what's what's interesting is we're now you know 20 the, years later well yeah the this film was made on the 20th anniversary of the new Taiwanese cinema we're now 20 years away from that um i i, I did look up the director on imdb and she made a, another documentary about Taiwanese cinema in in 2015 so it'd be fascinating to see that but i i, I would imagine it's not available I know, but I want to underline this point because, you know, both you and I, you know, have friends <laughs> who will not be named in this podcast, <laughs> who have no problems, for example, just watching any old stuff on YouTube. The implication being that really, you know, the visual quality doesn't matter. Yeah, that what matters is the plot. And so long as you can follow the plot and the laughs, then actually that's all you need. And, you know, I am obviously like in great disagreement with that. And this is one of the uh, documentaries that kind of prove my point. Oh, because, definitely, definitely. Um, I and, mean, and... films are light, <laughs> you know. And if you see City of Silence, those beautiful scenes outside the whorehouse, you know, with the reds and the light and, you know, action taking place on kind of, you know, on three different planes in the film. Well, actually... In the clip that this film shows, you can't see any of that. Well, but what you know? actually, what would be really interesting would be to to do a capture of of a scene from one of the films as shown in the documentary, and a capture from it as we watched it, yes. the restored copy, and you can see that difference. I will uh, uh, get a, a capture of this, you know, the same image as we see it in this documentary because it illustrates that point so vividly. I think. Closing words? Um, I would just you know, highly recommend this documentary. As I say, it, it, it sounds like a bit of an overstatement to say it's worth 
paying, I think you can get this 1799 is what you currently pay for that Criterion Blu-ray. It's almost worth buying it just for this documentary. But you also get as an extra feature the four hour long Edward Yang film of Bright Summer Day, <laughs> which we will be covering at some point. But yeah, it's, it's as I say, it's readily available. It's re- it, it really is fascinating. So, yeah, and I and it, it's, you know, is just so much better than Flowers of Tai Pai that we're, now, we're trying to put behind us. <laughs> Hurrah! <laughs> thank you. <laughs> all right, thank you all uh, for listening. We are thinking aloud about film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.